Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Swine Disease Reporting System. This is the report number 47. This is the first report of the year of 2022. My name is Edison Magalhães here at Iowa State University. Hello, my name is Giovanni Trevisan here at Iowa State University. Hello, Daniel Linhares, also at Iowa State. And today uh, we'll cover the SDRFS findings uh, from the previous month, the last month of, of December. But first, uh, let me introduce you guys, uh, our special guest today. It's a pleasure to have Dr. Luke Dufresne. Uh, Dr. Dufresne is the Director of Veterinary Service at Seaboard Foods. That is an integrated swine production system with uh, around 350,000 uh, sows located in Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, and Texas and Iowa. Uh, Dr. Dufresne got his DVN from the University of Montreal, uh, and prior to joining the Seaboard Foods, Dr. Dufresne held positions at Shurgain, Browns of Carolina, which is the now is Midfield Foods, uh, Beringer, Ingelheim, and PIC. Dr. Dufresne's responsibilities include managing the company's preventive health programs, biosecurity, diagnostic protocols, and also developing and supervising animal health research projects at Seaboard Foods. Uh, he also serves as, as uh, in our, our advisor uh, council at the SDRS. Dr. Dufresne, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for, for accepting this invitation. Thank you, Edison, Giovanni, and Daniel for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be there. So our, our first question, Dr. Dufresne, we usually ask this for our special guests. So what is the value in your opinion of, of uh, the, uh, the SDRS for the swine industry? How does it help you to, to make decisions on a daily basis? Well, I, I think the SDRS has been very helpful for us showing trend over time on important pathogen and what phase of production they are seeing. It's been particularly interesting when we look at the emergence of new per strain like the 144 Lanish 1C and looking at uh, disease like PED and mycoplasma change over time, those have been very insightful. Uh, you always have to keep in mind that those are not all diagnostic samples associated with clinical case. Some of them are surveillance. Some of them are looking at compliance to ensure that the exposure program are successful, especially for PED or mycoplasma. And then you have also thinking, uh, to keep in mind uh, vaccine versus natural infection, especially in disease like PERS. But overall, it's a very good tool for us on a macro scale to see the overall evolution of main pathogen related to their overall prevalence, phase of production, where they appear, and how new strains start to evolve and appear in, in the system. Uh -huh. oh, thanks for, for your comment. Okay, let's, let's get started and see what were the findings uh, from the previous month. So, First, we're going to start in the PERS page, uh, which is the, the, the page that covers the PCR detection for PERS on the five uh, VDLs included at the SDRS. Giovanni, what were the findings from the month of December in terms of PCR detection for PERS? Well, during December, there was a moderate increase in PERS virus detection, and that was basically contributed for increasing detection of, in the age category, adult South Farm. We have been seeing a preceding increase in the winter finishing sites that now looks like is reflecting in the adult south farm. Also have been closed monitoring PERS virus strains during 2021. And we have been mostly directing our attention for the emerging PERS virus lineage on C variant strain. And that has been kind of formed a new wave of detection in October and November. And looks like now it's 
we didn't expect that from the previous months. But what is interesting for these personalized monitoring strains, as Dr. Dufresne mentioned about looking for the trends in, in that area, is that we have been seeing some activities of uh, the uh, lineage 1A, 174, more specifically in the states of Indiana, Ohio, and with some activity also in Illinois. And it looks like it's pretty ramping up a little bit, the sequences over there. So it's going to be interesting to see what's going to come out in the next months or what are going to be the finds in the fields in terms of production impact of these strains. Before we flip to the next page, we'd like to get uh, uh, Luke's idea here or, or, or perspectives on where we are today with PERS. It's one of the most significantly, economically significant at least disease here in the US. And in your mind, what, how, what have you progressed and where are we still failing on PERS management, Luke? Well, when you look at PERS, there's no doubt that it's more than ever the most important disease in the swine industry related to the overall impact and performance. Uh, we are getting better on eliminating the virus and keeping sow herd stable, negative for a longer period of time. But we have done a lot of that by moving sow base in more isolated region or by better biosecurity and adding tool like air filtration. Unfortunately, when we look at it at a large scale, despite our best effort, what we see now now is we see more and more new strains appear that are more virulent and spread more easily. And we see a lot of lateral infection in group of stable naive pigs where live vaccination success has been marginal at best. And as we look, as we have more new tools like whole genome sequencing uh, that show us that multiple strains can circulate at the same time and that recombination is a much more frequent event than we previously thought. And recombination can happen with live vaccine too. So we still are dealing with a lot of issue with that virus. And unfortunately, I've been dealing with that disease that has appeared about the same time as I started practicing veterinary medicine. And we're not near to find a solution on how to control it the best on a large scale. And Dr. Dufresne, in your opinion, what should be taking consideration when you are designing a plan to eliminate or control first virus in breeding herds. And based on all of your experience of being practiced first virus basically merged in the US, what's your advice to the US industry? And could you share a little bit about your experience in elimination and control of first virus? Well, I mean, the goal will vary greatly depending about the farm or the system specific situation and the relative risk of getting reinfected. So if, if you take farm that have good regional isolation of uh, air filtration system, good biosecurity, and you can keep the virus out for an extended period of time, in those cases, uh, I think you've got to go with virus elimination and basically do it by, by, by herd closure, exposure, and let the herd cool off and, and do an extensive diagnostic to ensure that those farms are getting negative. Mm -hmm. So the issue now, as you present in the past, is that the time to negative take a longer than what used to be. But I think for those farms, the return is uh, makes sense and you should do it. Uh, but if you go in a lot of the system of farm that we I'm dealing with, we are dealing with multiple saw farm in a close regional proximity with other saw farm or growing pig population that are often sharing infrastructure like feed meal and, and and some transportation. So in those situations, it will depend. 
So if that system of multiple form is isolated uh, and you have only one virus circulating, in those we have good success by using a, a virus exposure and, and associated with either closure or parity segregation and to bring the herd to a system and stable negative status. But, but that being said, when, when you do that, you have to, uh, that approach can be successful, but you have to, to understand that if you do live virus exposure, virus will change on you and you're dealing a little bit with a time bomb. And the longer you do that, if you don't do it on the goal of, of, of uh, stability and bring the herd to, uh, to elimination, eventually you can see that uh, come back and hurt you. Another system where we are dealing with very high density and multiple strains circulate, and we basically playing guacamole in that situation where we have to prioritize action based on total impact on throughput, especially on an integrated system. Because like for us, I think uh, a packing plant and not necessarily in, in like in the Gaiman area, we don't have, uh, we cannot have other supply of pork or pigs to, to, to bring to the packing plant. So if we shut down farm, it mean empty shackle spaces. So it's often not the, a situation we can apply. So in those, we basically have to consider that all per strains are not created equal. In some cases, we have strain that are just after the south have been exposed and you went through the, the cool off phase, the growing pigs are doing fine. In other cases, it's not. The strains seem to have a lot more a respiratory sign. So if we have a milder strain, we have more tendency to live with it. If the strain is more, a big tail end and we will look at control and elimination. That's what will basically dictate which farm you will go and shut down and have reduced throughput and which one you will keep on going. Uh, your goal is always to try to bring stability and elimination of the virus over time, but it's always a question of how can you get the return and how long can you keep those farms to be stable. That's a great perspective. Then Thanks for sharing all of that. And just adding to that, to those PERS management strategies that you mentioned, any new tool that has been, that was developed that can, can, can help on that too? Uh, at this time, unfortunately, I don't see huge impactful tool, tool other than gene editing, honestly, that put a, a resistant, a PERS resistant pigs. Uh, Long, long term, we would like to think that by doing more whole genome sequencing and looking at a lot of different strains that have different type of uh, pathogenicity that we could identify better uh, area of the genome associated with the pathogenicity or the higher replication of the virus and be able to develop more targeted therapy or vaccine to be able to act on it. But that's a long project. At this point, air filtration has been a very good tool, but it's fairly expensive and cannot be applied in everywhere. The thing that we don't really have looked at is there enough um, things that we could do that would be inexpensive to basically limit the virus getting out of the farm versus the virus getting in of the farm. As we have a lot of uh, population and growing pigs that through our fan exhausted a lot of viruses. Is there a possibility that we could put something unexpected, uh, fairly unexpected, unexpected, less che cheap to reduce the amount of virus that get aerosolized out of those farms? Oh, great. Thanks for your comments. 
So let's move on to the next page of the report, which, which is the page number two that covers PCR detection for <clears throat> enteric coronavirus. Giovanni, what were the findings from the previous month? Well, for enteric coronavirus, it's, it's pretty good to look at this information and see that we are having a similar levels of detection during December as November for all of those agents that they're, they're reported. And during 2021, the detection of PED has been lower than expected. Delta coronavirus, there was some activity in the beginning of the year, but now is within the expected. And fortunately, we are reaching the end of 2021 with the request that already came to the VDLs with only three submissions that tested for positive for TG. So it looks like we have been progressing pretty well in terms of enteric coronavirus detection and lowering the level of activity of these agents. And on, and on PD, look, we, we understand that at the end of two, 2019, you guys at Seaboard started to test all growing and finishing sites before and after placement for the entire coronavirus monitoring, right? And so what have you learned with that approach? Uh, and has it contributed to improving the control of these, uh, of enteric coronaviruses within the system? Uh, most definitely, basically aggressive testing pre-movement, not only at the finisher, but also out of the nursery and out of the saw farm and testing of any clinical scours combined with increased segregation biosecurity measure between site. All of that has allowed us to detect PD infection at early stage and be able to implement control measure quickly and minimize area spread. We have seen basically a rate of transmission moving down uh, and our number of positive site uh, reduced by 75 to 80% on the finisher site. And the thing is a lot of those sites were infected and would not have been detected if we not have big samples because there were really little scours apparent in those pigs. Uh, also testing pigs at when we received, we've seen cases of uh, pigs that were coming from a negative farm and getting to a negative nursery, but testing positive when they get to the nursery, looking at infection in transit in route that appear to be more frequent. And, and when we went back looking at route, we figure out that there was area at risk where those, those uh, transporter move was moving close to packing plan. Or an example of where there was the, uh, a lot of rain and there was a lot of splashing happening. We've seen uh, contamination of, of, of winged pigs and transport happening that those things would not have been possible if we would not have done those aggressive testing and, and see that. Mm -hmm. well, that's a lot of uh, learning process and that experience for testing of these animals and thank you for sharing that. And when we look for this detection of PD from 2020, 2021, we have seen this decrease in detection of this agent specifically. And do you think we are close to create a momentum for eliminating PD from the US swine herds, or we still need a long path to plow yet to get at that point? Well, well John, Giovanni, I don't, I don't think so. At this time, you have to remind you that we all producer that are very aggressive testing and not everybody is doing that type of aggressive testing on the growing and finisher population. The other issue is also that we don't have a very good, uh, there's several um, truck 
that are moving pigs that are not washed. On the market side, the washing capacity is not there to allow all trailer going to a site to be washed and disinfected. So when you combine the lack of, of uh, testing with the lack of market crop washing, it's extremely difficult to avoid seeing infection happening and going pig and create a pool of virus that always put the solid population at risk. So until there's a movement to do much more aggressive testing in the growing pig population and put resources in place to ensure that you place pigs always in the clean truck, or at least that it's only when you're dumping a site or into a 48, 72 hour period that you can use dirty truck, then that, that uh, could, uh, will not be, will, will not be able to get that done, I think. Well, but that's a, a good advice for the clear path that we can start to think about if someday you want to reach that. Yeah, I mean, you don't know, if you don't test, you don't know. And mm -hmm. then oh, some yeah. producer go and they say, oh, we're fine. And, and then we, we do some testing at the plant and they were not. So, but uh, clinically you have to think that, especially when you move in growing pig population, the expression can be very variable. And if you rely only on clinical side, you're going to miss a lot of those infections. Let's move on to the next page, which is the page number three that covers PCR detection for mycoplasma. Giovanni, what were the findings for the, this pathogen the previous month? Well, we are entering the, the winter months here that is January, February. And we expect to see decrease of detection of mycoplasma hyomonia, and we already saw that during December. There was no big surprise on that, and it's moving according to expected. So, the question on that is: uh, I understand that different production systems have different approaches on mycoplasma management, and you you, you guys may have south farms in high dense, low dense areas. What could you share your thoughts and perspectives on how to deal with uh, mycoplasma hyomonia specifically? Um, I mean, initially we have approached it in twofold. We have basically in a lot of our higher dense area, we are basically exposing our gilts around seven weeks of age. Uh, the idea there would be to bring them uh, uh, to be non-shedding at time of therapy. And that approach has been fairly successful uh, to, to control overall uh, circulation in saw farm. Uh, we have done repopulation of different part of the system, and there we have repop those farm with uh, naive animal. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we've seen reinfection in most of those farm. One was due to close proximity of growing pigs and isolated basically the same mycoplasma that was circulating in some of those growing pig population. The other one uh, was basically an infection in the GDU, that infection, although that was barely detectable uh, initially, um, we basically suspect the GDU to be positive. Then we, we went to the saw farm to receive those guilt and start doing laryngeal swab. And it took us four weeks to have the first positive out of those guilts. So that's one of the big issue with mycoplasma is come back to be able to get diagnostic. If the, if the population is infected and you move animal on a regular base, you will never pick it up before it's too late. And that's what happened in those saw farm. So, so we, we've moved back to now basically other than a farm that has internal multiplication uh, that uh, 
that is negative, all of our system is basically working on uh, guilt exposure and, uh, and then moving those animals. One of the issues we have seen though in some of very high density growth finish is, is an emergence of, of mycoplasma break in growing pig population. Uh, where that we have been forced basically to go into adding a, 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 sh a shot of a straight mycoplasma vaccine because a regular uh, circle myco vaccine was not enough to protect them. And those animals were basically coming from a, a, a parity segregation system and there was absolutely no myco circulating in, in those pigs at, uh, until they exit the nursery. But when they went to that finisher area, uh, which is a very high density area, they just got infected and the pressure of infection month and we could not control it until we basically moved to a more aggressive vaccination. Well, thanks a lot for, for your comments. So now let's move to the next page. This page specifically covers disease diagnosed by the Iowa State VDL. So the information related to the diagnostic of, of diseases uh, in this video. And Giovanni, what, what did you, you find in, in that data from the previous month? Oh, there was a, a couple of activities from different agents that was some small spikes here and there that had contributed for increasing signal of number of diagnoses on the end of November. But the most significant one was a increase on the diagnosis of influenza A between November 7 and 20. That was uh, a spike that we had. And it looks like that is according to the expected for this time of the year. When we look from the data of previous years, we also saw this increase at this same similar period. Great. Any comments on that, Dr. Dufresne, Daniel? Uh, no, on the, on the influenza side, it has been for us kind of a, a, an interesting or frustrating issue at a certain point where we have taken a more passive approach that has not worked very well for us on working only with uh, guilt vaccination. We're looking more at using approach that has been talked uh, now about looking at specific elimination or at least reducing uh, virus leakage from South Farm to nursery, as we've seen more issue on the early nursery pigs, uh, starting with some, some uh, influenza strains circulating in those early phases. Great, thanks. So Dr. Dufresne, usually this, moving to the, to the, at the end of the, this conversation, we usually do this final question to our special guests where, so, how do, do you envision the, the, like the, the future of in the swine industry for disease uh, diagnostic detection? How do you, do, do you see that? Uh, I think as, as more molecular diagnostic get accessible and cheaper, uh, we will start to use tool like next generation sequencing and deep sequencing more often. Uh, as we do, we will need to try to combine those two with better analytical tool and using artificial intelligence machine learning to try to understand and predict pathogen interaction and looking in specific situation when I see what are the combination of pathogen that can make a situation extremely problematic, what are train, create you those train wreck at 25, 30% mortality where the same first train in other flow create you only 
two or three percent mortality. So what are those differences? And as we have more of those data, we can understand it. And the other thing that's going to be interesting also is to be able to predict, uh, uh, see if we're able to identify, identify early problematic strain of existing pathogen of new emergent pathogen and help us act quickly to control content and hopefully eliminate them. As, as we do more deep sequencing, we're gonna find viruses that are just there, that are just the, what I call the, the nice one that just replicate in your cell, don't create any damage. Uh, but as we, uh, the, as we move through time and see those emergence, we may be able to identify those pathogens faster without having to use cockpostulate and doing challenge study and say, these things look like the same because combining with those, we always see that factor appearing. And I think with those new technology, that should have, allow us to move more quicker to be able to identify the problem or new agent. Oh, great. So we're gonna have the new technologies, but also we have like, a lot of big data that we could also try to understand the interaction between what's happening there. Really good point, thanks. Yeah, it, it's, it's truly the combination of both of those that I think will bring the next level of, of our diagnostic interpretation. Okay, no, that was really good, thanks a lot. So that was it for, for to, uh, this month's podcast, guys. Thanks a lot, thanks a lot, Dr. Dufresne, for your thoughts. I think it was a really good conversation. And I hope you guys, the audience, enjoy this, this, this podcast. So with that, thanks and see you guys next month. Thank you. Happy New Year.